HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. I'm HRN's Communication Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of the next episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. We're exploring the future of eating animals, and we're going beyond typical meat sources. If you look at the length of human history, we've been eating insects a lot longer than we haven't been in the United States and Western Europe. We're looking at unusual ways to purchase meat. People are like, really? Why would I want to buy that out of a machine? And we introduce you to Frank Reese, a poultry farmer whose traditional farming methods are featured in a new documentary. I'm a fourth-generation farmer in Kansas, and I focus basically all on standard-bred poultry and have my whole life. He's kind of the last one standing with these rarefied breeds that are so important for if we're going to eat chicken and turkey into the future. He's essential. He's a national treasure. Listen to Meat and 3 this week to better understand the history and the future of meat. Available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Here at Heritage Radio, we're in the midst of our annual summer fun drive, and it is both fun and fund with a D. We need funds to stay on the air and to keep having fun here in the studio. Heritage Radio is a wonderful nonprofit that brings you 35, maybe more now, weekly shows from heritageradionetwork.org, and I encourage everyone who hears this podcast to log on at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and help support us, please. Today's theme is why Wagyu? Beef. It's what's for dinner. Where's the beef? These two phrases are burned into the brain of everyone, myself included, who was alive in the 1980s. Beef has long been an important protein in the United States and continues today to be a staple on tables in many forms. Even as we've come to understand, we shouldn't be eating as much as we often do, and nobody needs a 24-ounce prime rib or the old 96er, as beef has come into focus as perhaps the worst offender when it comes to greenhouse gases related to agriculture. We still love it. I love it. It's delicious, and for those that raise it and raise it well, it's an industry and an economic driver. 
Of course, it's the same way for those that do it poorly, and as far as I'm concerned, you're better off eating MREs than poorly raised, slaughtered, and cared for beef. My guest today is Dave Yasuda of Snake River Farms. They're a more than two-decade-old company based in Idaho who raise, slaughter, cut, pack, and sell American Wagyu beef and Berkshire pork. It's a vertically integrated supply chain, and they're transparent about what they do and how they do it. And for that, I commend them. They make sure there's a use and a market for every part of the animal they slaughter, and they go to great lengths to provide an integrated economy as well, from their ranchers to their consumers. If we're going to eat meat, it should come from somewhere we trust. Wagyu is a Japanese breed of cow, prized for its intramuscular fat. Fat, after all, is responsible for a lot of flavor, and the grading system in many countries, including the U.S. and Japan, take into account how much fat appears in the meat. In Japan, they raise full-blooded Wagyu, and there are a few people here in the U.S. that do that too, but the bulk of what we call American Wagyu is a cross between Japanese genetics and an American Angus or other breed. I've eaten more Wagyu than I probably need to have, and to be honest, the Japanese obsession with fat is hard to swallow sometimes, literally. It can just be too much. However, I think we can learn a lot from the Japanese in terms of portion size, and I encourage you to eat less beef, but eat better beef. In Japan, they raise Wagyu on things ranging from the conventional to the esoteric. My favorite is olive-fed Wagyu from Gagawa Prefecture. The cows are fed a diet that mixes in the leftovers from pressing olives for oil, and it makes their coats shiny and lush, and the meat delicious with more omegas than any other beef. Wagyu's prized in Japan, and the pricing can make someone from a highly subsidized food country like this one dizzy. Upwards of $150 a pound isn't uncommon for the best stuff. Perhaps Snake River Farm will start experimenting with some Idaho specialty Wagyu. Potato and onion, perhaps? Check out snakeriverfarms.com and use code FYE2018 for a 10% discount and free shipping on every order over $99. Check out the interview I did with Dave. All right, we are we are rolling. All right, man. All right, so uh, welcome, Dave Yasuda of Snake River Farms to Feast Your Ears. Um, when you meet somebody, you know, like on a plane. So we're sitting here in New York. We're in a conference room okay. uh, in Soho. On the plane here, if you sit down next to someone and they turn to you and they say, hey, what do you do? What do you, what do you say? Yeah, I tell them I work for Snake River Farms. It's a, a company that raises American Wagyu beef. And then there's like, oh, it's American Wagyu beef. And Harry, I know you're up to speed on that. But yep. for folks at home that Sure, don't yeah, know. please explain American Wagyu. So American Wagyu is, uh, it's 50% Wagyu. And Wagyu is the, it's a breed of cattle. And so that's uh, the cattle that's used for the famous Kobe beef. Yep. And then the other half is a continental breed. You know, people like to automatically go to Angus, and sure. certainly we have Angus, but there's Charlotte, there's many other breeds. And we try to select whatever that breed is based on what's the best. You know, it's like going to the right. market. So that's kind of how that all goes. Yeah. But anyway, that's American Wagyu, and it's it. Uh, what's it, what's nice about it is it's highly marbled. USDA Prime is the highest level of marbling in, sure. in the U.S. Three percent of all the beef in the country grades out at that level. But everything that Snake River Farms produces is above USDA Prime. Wow. Yeah. And so if you aren't familiar with that, folks, it's, a, you know, it's, it's intramuscular fat. Yep. So the more fat, the more flavor, the more juiciness. Yeah. And, and, and when you are buying steaks uh, in, the, in, you know, in the marketplace, what people are often looking for is that intramuscular fat. And in the United States, we have, we have only a couple of grades, right, mm-hmm. with, with Prime being the top. When you go to Japan... Where I feel like they get more—I uh, don't know how to describe this. I, you know, they get more intense, I guess, about everything. <laughs> the grading system is far more complicated, and you have different numbers within different letters. You have the top being A five. So if you were shopping for Japanese beef, you might be shopping for A four or A five. 
which, you know, I've, I've been to Japan a number of times. Um, I've eaten a lot of Wagyu there. I've visited Kagawa mm-hmm. where they raise Wagyu. I mean, Japan has a lot oh. of regional specialties with Wagyu. Yes. I heard recently about a place where they're raising them on tangerines uh, <laughs> or some sort of citrus. Uh, you know, I, know I, I imagine there must be places that they're feeding them kelp, uh, you know, things sure, like that. <laughs> um, and I went to a region where they're feeding them olives. And that, you know, very similar, I think, to Snake River, always grading at the highest here. The olive-fed Wagyu in Kagawa always grades out at A4 or A5, which is the highest, but I find that to be way too fatty. So how does Snake River compare to, say, a Japanese grade? You know, uh, that's one one of the challenges of the brand. Snake River Farms is about 20 years old. And the company... Which means you've been doing Wagyu in this country probably as long as anyone, right? Probably. You know, about that time, it seems like there were, were some Wagyu bulls that made over the States. And yeah. um, we try to talk, uh, you know, we have the history from inside the company, but then if you just Google it, I'm always interested to see what people have to say. But it, it seems like a lot of things hit at that time. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we have been doing it that long. And the thing that... Harry, now I've totally spaced on the question you started asking. <laughs> I was asking where Snake River Farms falls in a Japanese okay. grading system. In like if Japanese, you've done yeah. comparisons and... Yeah, we're, we're... A5, we actually have some that will occasionally grade at that level. Sure. But it's... We are actually targeting something lower. So right. The food is everything. You mentioned that diet. We, we don't do tangerines or olives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but our animals really do eat local. Yeah. And there's a couple reasons for that. You know, I think there is a terroir that goes with beef. You know, like wine. I, I, you were just mentioning that olive... Uh, yeah. Diet. I think that you said that imparts some qualities to the yep. beef, but our animals. We have a, a group of scientists, really like uh, PhDs, who are work on on the feed that's called a ration. And for each stage of life, there's a different ration that, that's produced. And when I was mentioning eating local, so we're in Idaho. There's often potatoes. There's soft winter wheat. There's molasses. And I'm going to start carrying a baggie around that ration because when you smell it, it it's very appetizing. I mean, sure. it's like you could dig it with a spoon and you right, right. So I think that's really critical. I mean, you are what you eat for, for Well, and, and I would imagine from a, from a, you know, just a direct farming and ranching perspective, it makes way more sense to be buying stuff from your neighbors exactly. than to be trucking stuff across the country or even across the world. Yeah, I mean, there was a time when corn was... Plentiful and cheap, and yeah. I mean that, that still is going to make it in the ration. But no, it doesn't. You don't want to spend the money to bring things in, and also, like you said, you want to work local. You establish relationships with local farmers, and yeah. and that just makes a ton of sense. So you guys are near the actual Snake River, I assume, in Idaho. <laughs> the uh, American Falls. <laughs> we it, it started. Out, yes, we're in the proximity too. Yeah. But our uh, one thing that's unique about Snake River Farms is that we control, or at least we uh, impact everything along the way starting from the genetics um, all the way to when the product is is produced or slaughtered, the animals are slaughtered. We have our own production facility. Oh, you have your own facility. Wow. Which is unique. Um, yeah. we, we can control that. I think what happens if you talk to a lot of chefs that use our product, the reason they do, the quality is always high and it's consistently high. Oftentimes, Wagyu programs are kind of bought on the open market. Mm-hmm. And not all of them, but that's what you know. we hear. People like, oh, I bought this. And my gosh, it was an amazing price. Yeah, and then I got... And, and maybe today it was fantastic. And then that quality made ebb and flow where it was sourced from. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, I mean that's that's very interesting that you have the control over that process um, because I mean I I used to I used to own a butcher shop and, and oh, wow. well understand the sort of sourcing vagaries mm-hmm. um, in the meat industry and you know 
on top of that, having worked with the Wagyu farmers in Japan, you know, you can only know so much when the animal's on the hoof. So, you know, you can look at the animal and you can think, well, I think it's going to grade prime or I think it's going to grade A5, but you really don't know until it's slaughtered. And so much can happen in that slaughtering oh, um, and, and in the control of that animal and what happens to it. So if you're in a position where you are doing the best herd management and you are raising an incredible animal, all of that can get ruined if you send it to a slaughterhouse that doesn't treat it correctly. That's absolutely correct. So, um, and that whole process is just important. So. Temple Grandin, you've probably heard of. Of course. Of I recently watched the movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she uh, she designed the shoots or the entry points, yeah. you know, the way the cattle enter the, the production facility. And, you know, at our core, we're, we're, it, we really have just a lot of ranchers and folks. Like, there's people in my office in Boise, you know, who work in IT, and at the end of the night, they go home and they, they work on their own small herd. Their own small herd, huh? And so people are really close to the process, yeah, to the absolutely. animals, and, you know, that comes up a lot. I mean, when I'm not really a, I was raised on a farm in Idaho, but I wasn't really a, in the beef industry. I worked for different food companies. And when this opportunity came up at AgriBeef, someone said, Hey, this job sounds like it'd be perfect for you. And I thought, I don't know about beef. I mean, knowing nothing about the company, really not knowing that much about the beef industry, but it just kind of felt like it would fit. But once I met the people and you really start understanding the process there, it's, it's unique. I mean, we're, we're part of the beef industry and yeah. we understand that we're not trying to, I think we try to be very realistic about everything. We understand sure. that if you want to be the most socially conscious, environmentally friendly product, it's probably not beef. But we do our best to ensure that we're being as sustainable as possible. You know, like, if you go to the plant, you should come to the plant, Terry. I, I, I would love to. I, I actually, I have been to Idaho a couple of times. Um, I have had a, I had a really good time in Boise uh, back in the early, early, early 2000s. And then actually my wife and I got engaged in Boise. What? Well, sort sort of by accident. Uh, I mean, not really. By Would accident, she say but, accident? Well, uh, maybe. Uh, and so we went to see the Pixies, and it was in two thousand. This would have been in early two thousand four. Um, and at the end of the night, I turned to her and I said, "You know, do you think they would play at our wedding?" <laughs> and she looked at me and she said, "Well, you'd have to ask really nicely." And I said, "Well, ask you or ask the Pixies." So. That was, we got engaged in, uh, in Boise. I love that story. Yeah. Maybe we get you, you know, you could be the poster child for visit <laughs> Boise. So anyway, yeah, I mean, I, I would love to come and come and visit. So tell me a little bit about, um, you know, about like, what is your, like, what does the day-to-day look like at, at Snake River? I mean, obviously you guys are doing a lot. So you're not just raising the cattle, right? You're doing the genetics. So, I mean, you go all the way back to the beginning, you're doing the genetics, which not everybody does. You are then, uh, you know, then you have, the, then there's calving, then you're raising the cattle. So, super quick, so we have the genetics, we have a herd of bulls, yeah. uh, you know, we have pure Wagyu animals. And but what happens is we contract with farmers, so, you know, and they, they the calves come out, yep, and they, sure. they have the calves, and then they raise them, you know, and they right. get to the point where then we can get them to the feed yard. Yep. So feed yard always has a super negative connotation. Uh, we do have the, I mean, you, you can see where, you know, all, almost all animals, ours in particular, they live for a year in these amazing grass-fed fields where they graze. Then they go into, and the feed yard I know has negative connotations, I just said, but, you know, these are designed specifically when you go there. I mean, I would, you should come out. Sure. Yeah, 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 that's it. But then you could 
Have you been to other feed yards? Have you been to other cattle operations? I have not. I have not been internally to other cattle operations. I've driven through feedlots in Nebraska. I've driven through feedlots in Southern California. Like I've driven by okay. them. I've never been in the facility specifically, but I've seen them from the outside. So when you see it, I mean, the animal care is critical. There are no growth promotants used for the, the wagyu animals. You know, the, one of the things that happens is like you can feed other breeds and at a certain point there's no more intramuscular fat just forms on the outside right. wagyu are unique in, to, in that it continues to develop that intramuscular fat yeah. and um, so the slow feeding process takes like about 500 days yeah. so they're on feed for 500 days and like I said there's different rations for different stages of life and uh, so that, that's, that's a pretty serious commitment in time for the investment sure. in money. and longer than conventional Yes, conventional can be like 180 days. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, so that's a much bigger, you know, so you're making a much bigger commitment to to the, the quality of life and to the feed and to the pro- and to the final product, ultimately, yes. right? That's where we're, that's really what it comes down to. It is. So, it's, it's you know, the original idea was that uh, uh, the founder of our company, Bob Grebholtz, was in Japan and he saw the Wagyu cattle and he said, man, that's, they don't have any land here in Japan. We should raise it in the United States and ship it back. Oh, interesting. That was the, so that was the idea. original idea. And then, you know, without going through cattle history or just, you know, yeah. export, import, there's different things that happen. But it just wasn't as cost effective. Although sure. we do export to about 40 countries now. Wow. Um, and a lot of that, though, is are the other. We like to say we sell everything but the moo. Yeah. So, you know, there's hides, there's dried blood, there's all kinds sure. of different things yeah. that go to that. Uh, additional markets well which is great i mean which is yeah, great that's that, have, that you have a market for that i mean because i again like my you know i i've certainly met and spoken to people where things like the blood and hides are just being trashed right yeah which is a huge it, waste. it's a huge waste and really if you're going to go to all this trouble and you're going to raise this animal you really should use as much as you can and there are markets for it too yeah of course so you know we, we have our, our um, executive uh, kind of uh VP of sales, Terry Reynolds, likes to, uh, he and I sit in on these new uh, employee orientations, but it's interesting, he breaks down his whole team, and when you look at the pounds of what's sold, like the two people that handle all those secondary products handle the majority of the volume. You know, oh, the, interesting, by pounds, yeah, by pounds, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. that's very interesting. So then to get back to sort of what, the, what the, the, the business looks like, I guess. So then you have the animals, and then they are slaughtered at a, at a USDA mm-hmm. facility that you guys it's you guys own. It's in Toppenish, Washington. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, are the are the animals then butchered in that in yes. that same facility? Same so facility. into final cuts. Yes. That will go out to restaurants and consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, and you guys serve both. You serve both restaurants, and then you also have direct to consumer uh, via your website. Yes, we do. Oh, well, and then so super quick, we have we also. Produce you know Northwest beef under different brands, but you know more of a, a you know a, a non wagyu animal. So number one market for us, and again turn, in terms of sales volume, is going to be retail, so yep. just to the grocery stores. And we are you know we're we're big, but we're not that big. We, you know people will come and say, hey, we'd love to have your beef in all these places. It's like well, we only produce so much. Yeah. And and so which is actually nice. It puts us in a good position where you get the best relationships, and we can also make sure it's going to the right places. But in addition to retail grocery stores, there is a food service. You know, so we go to the restaurant industry. And then we have an online component, snakeriverfarms.com. That's where I work. Got it. Very cool. And you grew up in Idaho. I did. Um, tell me you know, tell me about that. I mean, <laughs> you're, so you, you grew up in Idaho. Your last name is Yasuda. So I'm assuming you, 
your family is not originally from Idaho. They're, they're not. I'm third generation Japanese. Got it. And uh, so when the Japanese on the West Coast were sent to concentration camps yeah. in, during World War II, my, both my families ended up in that greater, uh, it's right on the border, it's Ontario, Oregon, yeah. Payette, Idaho. It's, there are a lot of Japanese yeah. people that ended up there. But anyway, I was raised on a onion farm in Caldwell, Idaho. Mm-hmm. The population at the time was about 14,000, I think. Wow. So, um, yeah, there were, it's, you know, it's, it, it, you can imagine Caldwell, Idaho, and it's kind of like you, you know, it's, it's waving fields and, you know, open <laughs> spaces, but, you know, as a kid, I hated it. You want to get out of it. You <laughs> sure. know, I want to be out there and never go back. But, yeah. you know, it created some interesting things be, because, you know, people talk about eating local. I think it's part of the Japanese thing, but, you know, my, my mom was an outstanding cook, but she, she and my father, if something was fresh, you ate it then. Right. So, like, we would have neighbors that would pick sweet corn, you know, when it would come on. And they would drop a bag off in the morning, probably like four thirty, five o'clock in the morning. And my mom would say, "We need to eat this before it goes bad." Right. So, we're <laughs> so for breakfast, we'd have it. I had corn on the cob for breakfast yeah. quite a few times. That's but it. I got to tell you, it did taste pretty good. Yeah, and and I'll bet you, if you waited until dinner time, it would not have tasted as good, right? I mean, like you know, you talk about things comparatively, yeah. Sure, yeah, you know, like I, mean, I bet it would. Well, those kernels just kind of pop as soon as you put them in your mouth. Yeah. It's so fresh and, and really oh, sweet. Amazing. So both of your your so your fam your family was interned in the in the in my the father's camps? family was my mom's family actually the amalgamated sugar company had a uh, when all the men went off to war they needed people to work yeah. and they brokered an interesting deal with the U.S. government where they would take Japanese uh, people that were Japanese Americans that were interned yeah. would could work in the sugar uh-huh. factory so that's how my mom my mom's father my grandfather on my mom's side. Uh, signed them up for that in Nyssa, Oregon. Got it. And there's a whole program that was put together. It's called uh, Uprooted, and it, it talks about that. But one thing that, and I didn't know this, and I don't think my parents knew this either growing up, uh, or th- my grandparents did, once they did that, actually technically they signed, uh, the, the agreement was, you're, you're technically free. So even though they've been ah, incarcerated, got it. a few people said we're going. We're gonna. We, we you know we see the loophole. We're out of here. But you know other people are like where the hell are we gonna go? So, but yeah. so my mother worked in uh, they worked in the sugar beet fields. Huh. And but they set up schools and yeah, of course. Yeah, my mom actually. Where were they, they living before that? They were in Gresham, Oregon. Okay. So they were already in Oregon. They weren't brought from like California or somewhere else. Yeah. To... They did not move as far as many yeah. people did. Right. Think about what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound. What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy saltwater? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass, long chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. I'm Southern Teague of Amoria Margo and a co-host of The Speakeasy right here on Heritage Radio Network. You know, my favorite thing to do every week is to come here and be on the show. I have lots of jobs. I'm a very busy person. um, And I do this because I love it. 
I get to sit down and talk to all my heroes for about an hour every week. It's incredible. And I hope that you enjoy it, making a great effort to share with you. We'd like you to share back with us. It's our summer fundraiser, and we'd love for you to donate uh, at heritageradionetwork.org forward slash donate. You can click on the beating heart, and you can even choose shows that you'd like to donate to specifically. And you can also choose a recurring monthly uh, gift. Uh, And for all that, we'd be greatly appreciative. Thank you so much. You guys also do pork as well. We do. We do uh, Kurobuda pork, uh, 100% Berkshire. Yep. You know, it's a nice match. The Snake River Farms has a tie to Japan, so the Kurobuda pork does too. Hams are kind of the big thing that we start working on. uh, But also just like, boy, I have to tell you, like the, the... pork shoulders, the pork collar is probably my favorite cut, yeah. just super rich, and, and you know, the Kurabuda pork has really fine streaks of marbling, and the, the flesh is more red, Yep, has sure. a higher pH, retains more moisture, Yeah, that's yeah. the science of it, the bottom line is you eat that pork chop, it's pretty damn good. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, and are those those animals very similar, I mean, raised in the same area they geographically are. As, the, as your Well, pork? actually, well, there's some primarily in Iowa, Oh, okay. because, you know, it's the pork center, I bet, it, it, those uh, facilities are pretty amazing. You, know, you have to put on like a spacesuit to go yeah. in the Tyvek suit, yeah, yeah. and because if there's any uh, bacteria or virus that's in your respiratory system, you know the, the pigs have a similar yep. sort of immune system or lack thereof, and they yeah. can get ill. But yeah, I was I was amazed at the farms have to be very far apart. There's I mean miles apart, sure. just so nothing spreads. And I mean those facilities were pristine. I was shocked. Yeah. I kind of had this vision of. I'm not that familiar. I had not been that familiar with pork production until sure, that time. Sure. So, yeah. and then you guys do a lot of uh, you know what what in the meat industry is considered value added products. So you do I notice you do hot dogs. We um, do. You know, have you had those? I haven't, but we'll have to get you some. Yeah, yeah, they look they look really good. So you know we're coming up on you know probably the most American of holidays uh, next week, and uh, you know with July Fourth, and so that means it's time for grilling, right? Yes. So I mean, you know, what are your favorite cuts? You know. So, the middle meats are always everyone's favorites, right? The ribeye, the New York strip, the uh, tenderloin, and those are fantastic cuts. But you know, I really, especially for grilling season, I like the Terrace Major. You know, it's mm-hmm. like the shoulder tender. Yep. It's fantastic. It looks like a little tenderloin. Yeah, um, that's a great one. And the one thing that's nice about all the American Wagyu beef, if you just do salt and pepper, it just has so much flavor. You don't need to do right. anything else. But you know, while you're at it, it's great with the chimichurri. Carissa's good. In fact, that, that, you know, I love grilling that. We work with uh, Chef Jamie Bissonette, and he kind of oh, had sure. some, yep. some ways. And he, he likes to render the Wagyu fat, and then he puts, like, garlic and herbs in it, maybe some chili, and he bastes it with it and puts green onions on the grill and bastes the green onions with it, which is actually a great trick. I do it all the time. Now. Oh, that's a great idea. But then you cook those together, and you can slice them like a tenderloin and just eat, yeah. like, a schmear of Harissa paste or if you throw some chimichurri and... It, Kind of elevates the barbecue, yeah, for a sure. Bit, or, or grilling, the other, all those, uh, the other ones are uh, outside skirt steak. Man, that that one's a winner. There's no trick to that, really. Just hot and fast, you know. You, right. If you had a plancha, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Just, you know, <laughs> you have a big green egg or whatever, crank it yep. up, you know, crank it up as high as you go, just sear, sear, and that that's probably one of the internal faves. Like uh, uh, people love that in the office. Flank steak, it's fantastic. Flank steak, I do, do that sous vide a lot, mm, even if I yeah. finish on the grill. If, huh. Like if I don't know what I'm doing for Fourth of July, but if I'm yeah. having a lot of people over, I'd probably do that, and sure. I can have because you can like, have it already, already, and then yeah. you know people are coming and going, and 
So you just have it sitting in the immersion circulator, you know, the tanks yeah. going, and then you just sear it and rip, get yeah. it ready. For that kind of thing, I really like pork ribs. Oh, yeah. Um, because if you're having a long day where you're basically just kind of hanging out, and, you know, I mean, it's one thing if you have a lot, you know, if you're trying to do burgers and steaks and all sorts yeah. of stuff on a grill, but if you're just going to do one thing, you can just let sit it super low and just <laughs> let it sit there, right? I mean, and usually, especially with something show. like the Berkshire, like the Kuroboda, there's so much fat in it, yeah. central muscular fat, it's just going to render out and those ribs are just going to get better and better. And I did that recently at a barbecue Memorial Day and it worked out so well and, it, and I hadn't done ribs in a long time, but I thought to myself, gosh, it was so easy and you don't have to touch it. I mean, you just had to like, you had to <laughs> make sure it didn't tip, get yeah. too hot. I mean, that was actually the hardest part was keeping the grill low enough, I felt like. But once you keep the grill low enough, you don't even have to do anything. I love it. It doesn't require the flipping of burgers and the checking. <laughs> and the, you know. I know. You think burgers and dogs are going to be easy, but it's like, like you said, they, they're going to dry out and do whatever. These other things. The ribs, yeah. I'm doing that, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Another cut that I like a lot is uh, flat iron. That's one that... Uh, it actually has so much flavor. It holds up well to a marinade if you want to do something. Yeah. Um, I grew up in, so there was a place called the East Side Cafe in Ontario, Oregon. And it was where, if you go to the Boise Valley and ask anyone, anyone like of a certain age had like a hundred meals there. Just oh, really? Yeah, it was that place. You went there for prom. You, I mean, it, it was 50 miles away from Boise. Sure. But they had this dish called, it was essentially it was steak teriyaki. They called it green dragon steak. But with any of those cuts, like a flank or a, uh, flat iron those are great cuts to do that where you and I don't marinate it at all I season it salt and pepper grill it and then you use like a just a classic teriyaki you know ginger soy uh, garlic maybe some red chili flake and put that on there sprinkling the green onions and sesame seeds and it looks like you you know went to hmm. went to town on that it's super <laughs> easy so is there still a lot of Japanese influence in that part of the country you know the, in that area in Ontario there yeah. there is um, it's my Grandmother and three other Japanese women were integral to getting a, ja- a Buddhist temple in Ontario. Wow. And um, so if you go there, there's like, uh, <laughs> well, the one thing I do every year is there, there's a crab feed. That the, there's an organization called the Japanese American Citizens League. It sounds kind of insidious, but it's not. It's just, you know, it's like a lot of old Japanese people hanging out. But there's yeah. a nas- it's a national organization, um, but they have a crab feed that is pretty spectacular. So we always make it up for that. Um, but that's when you see the most Japanese people in one place. But, yeah. but uh, there is a lot of agriculture, a lot of Japanese uh, families are still farming out there. Got it. And, and are they farming I mean, Are they farming for Japanese market or an Asian market, or are they farming mostly just for... You know, it's going to be sugar beets, uh, onions, potatoes, yeah. you know, kind of those classic crops. Big crops, yeah. You're starting to see that change a little bit, not yeah. specifically the Japanese, but sure. you know, there's more demand for... You know, specialty vegetables. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you now have specialty, or you have more specific. I mean, grocery store chains. I mean, I think of some. Yesterday, I was in New Jersey. I went to H Mart. Mm-hmm. You know, H Mart. It's a Korean grocery yeah. store. Did and you they, see some Snake River Farms? Uh, I I didn't look at the meat case. Actually, <laughs> I was running in to get a couple of things. But you know, I do I do go there a lot, so I'll have to take a look and, and yeah, H Mart does carriers. Um, you know, but one of the things that always amazes me is how many vegetables that are essentially local in New Jersey that they end up with starting this time of year because they have farms now that are growing oh. stuff for them, and they're things that we don't you know I I don't see at the Sea Town. Or at the A and P, you know what I mean? Like that's cool. You know, you're you're seeing stuff. I mean, I was able to buy uh, organic uh, organic black beans 
that were in a Ziploc bag with like a little cut out paper label <laughs> from this farm that's, you know, all Korean. And I looked them up online and they raise jujubes and they do all this Korean fruit and they do Asian pears and they do, they do like organic beans. And I guess one of the big places they sell them is through H Mart. That's fantastic. It's fascinating, right? That is. It, but that's kind of where we're seeing food swing towards. Yeah. People are more conscious. That's one thing that people say to me a lot about Snake River Farms is when you go to a restaurant, you know, depending on the caliber of a restaurant, it's like, I don't want to order beef. I don't know where it came from. I don't know what's happening. Sure. And many restaurants do label it Snake River Farms. You'll see it a lot. And, yeah. and a lot of people say, you know, it gives me a level of confidence that... Sure. I, I know where it's sourced. Well, I, I mean, yeah, because we're living in this weird age, I think, especially as people are becoming more and more aware of their food and watching out for it and are members of CSAs and things like that mm-hmm. and are aware of these issues of, of, of contamination, right? I mean, we just had that big thing with lettuce coming out of Arizona. I know. And it, it lasted, and it lasted for weeks. I mean, it seemed like it went on forever. And they're like, well, we think it's all off the market now. But like we don't really know, right? And so, and then you see other, you know, there have been issues with contaminated beef and things like that. And so it is scary. And so, you know, really being able to know where the stuff is coming from, you know, if you're lucky and you live in a place where you know the farmer and they're a mile away, that's awesome. But then, if you are in a position where you're going to a restaurant and you do see someone like Snake River Farms, knowing that you guys have control over and are very careful with that entire process and that you're doing it in a way that is sustainable and respects the animal. I mean, that stuff I think is really, it's valuable. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and that's one thing I really enjoy about working for this company. One, uh, so we try to be as transparent as possible. You know, actually, if you go to AgriBeef, there you could take a video tour of our facilities, I mean, including the production plant. I probably, there's no one else that does that. Yeah. Now, it's not on the, the homepage, but sure. But we try to provide as much information as possible. Yeah, no, that's great. So tell me about uh, tell me about ramen in Boise. <laughs> so you know, it, I mean, ramen and Boise are not. I mean, ramen I feel like is is this uh, sort of phenomenon, um, and certainly, I mean, in New York, I've seen it like blossom into this incredible industry. What you know from from the time that I've spent in Japan and even like growing up a little bit around Japanese you know families. I mean, it's like you know that's like after the bar. I mean, yeah. like it <laughs> it is like a street food, but it's become this phenomenon. So you have you have ramen in Boise. Well, yes and no. <laughs> so um, you know I, I grew up in Idaho, but I worked jobs in San Francisco, Seattle, and L.A. I was in L.A. for I don't know the longest period of time. So clearly exposed to it a lot and you know I was gone from Idaho for I don't know 15-ish years and I moved back and I thought well should be nice to have a bowl of noodles and and there aren't any and so I had some buddies and we talked about it at this time there was a few people would menu it here and there and they would call things ramen and really was like it was noodles with something else you know just maybe more udon or you know something but not really ramen anyway uh, my buddy Jason Farber he owns a restaurant called uh, Manfred's and it's like a Started as a food truck, but he's got he had a kitchen facility, and it's right next to a place called Woodland Empire Brewing. And Keely and Rob uh, Landerman are there. Keely's half Japanese. Rob lived in Japan, but they both have really awesome palates. So we just started kicking some ideas around, and they said, "Well, we could brew some great beers to go with it." And Jason and I had been talking about well, the way it started. He said, "Let's make ramen and have a party." So okay, and he said, "Well, your house is bigger than mine. Let's do it at your house." I said, "Okay." He said, "How many people do you think you'd have?" I don't know, like forty. He goes, "That's not enough." We need to do something bigger. <laughs> so once he had a kitchen, 
Woodland had this thing together and, and uh, we put it online. We just advertised through, you know, social media. And it's going to, people who eat ramen are going to think this sounds outlandish, but it was 30 bucks. I think 30 $35, I can't remember now. But you get two beers, you get a bowl of ramen. We have like some appetizer and then you have like a dessert. So Woodland just went crazy. They did so many cool things. They did like a, a ginger saison, a, a umeboshi bulinavaisa. That yeah. might have been one of the best beers Sounds I've ever great. had. It's fantastic, man. It's funny because I was talking to Rob and Keely, and so they were talking about you know, getting together, and they said, guys, we need to make this thing taste like umeboshi. And they're like, what? <laughs> so they brought in some ume plums. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. This is what we're going for. But uh, they also did, uh, I think Kieran is like a, it's a, it's a white, it's a lager made with white rice. They did a brown rice lager version of that. Just all these cool things. Nice. But so Jason and I just started cooking ramen. We got pretty good at it. We're pretty good at it now, but we use Kuribu to pork. We kind of do the David Chang sort of thing. We look at David Chang's cookbook. We look at Ivan uh, Orkin's book. Yep. In fact, I was at uh, the Hot Luck Festival last year in Austin. It's something that, uh, 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 Aaron Franklin and Mike Thielen, yep. you know, they had this thing going on anyway, and Ivan was there. I'm like, and I, 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 seriously, I'm not bragging, but I meet a lot of famous chefs. You know, I went to a uh, barbecue and, you know, there's Jacques Pepin, we're hanging out drinking wine in Napa. Yeah. You know, all these, you know, we work with Hugh Atchison, we work with really yeah, good people. Yeah, of course. But I saw Ivan, I'm kind of like, because I've been so yeah. good ramen, <laughs> so I went over and I was, hey man, Snake River Farms, and that's always a good entree, and we sure. kind of talked, and I said, later on, we're kind of having a beer, I said, hey, you know, from Boise, Idaho, and I've been making ramen out there. He goes, really? Goes, yeah, and he, I said, you know, we looked at your book and whatever. He goes, well, God damn it. He goes, That's, I'm so happy to hear that. He goes, a lot of people thought I was being egomaniacal when I wrote that book, but I thought, you know, there's probably people out there in Boise, Idaho who want to make Why? ramen. <laughs> but he was really cool. He's like, so what kind of noodles? How are you doing your noodles? You know, what's in the stock? Tell me everything about it. Yeah. And he gave me a few tips. The biggest tip he gave me was you need to make your own noodles. Yeah. We've been buying sunnies. We had to FedEx them in because you couldn't get them in Right. Yeah. But uh, all that's changing. There's some Asian markets coming in. All this, this is like in the past two years. That's great. That's and so a long. place opened and it was okay, but I thought, man, just hang in there, guys. And they're closed now. They moved uh, to another place. So right now, I don't know, maybe we need to do something about it. Everyone's like, when are you going to open a restaurant? But I have an awesome job with Snake River Farms. It's like I. I it sounds to me like you could just keep doing the pop-up yeah, times think, a year, right? Yeah. And that would be and more fun. fun that, right? yeah. that, that, that'll keep it more fun than making yeah. it into a restaurant kind of thing. But there's an opportunity there. Yeah, you should. I mean, maybe uh, maybe I can convince I can convince Ivan and maybe we'll <laughs> come out and we can, we can attend or something. Yeah, come on out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ivan Ramen West. Yeah, that would be uh, that'd be cool. I mean, you know, like I said, like I've had a good time in Boise. So, you know, I don't see why. You know, it'd, be, it'd, be fun, it'd be definitely fun to go back. Um, so one of the you know one of the things I send out uh, regular listeners to the show know that I have this questionnaire that I send out to, to people who are going to be guests, um, and I was really struck by your uh, your answer to favorite cookbook, which was the Silver Palette cookbook, which was a cookbook that I grew up with for sure. Yeah. I mean that was what my mom used to use all the time. Um, and so I remember like when, you know, when I read your answer, I thought, oh man, I really should go back and, and, <laughs> and look at that cookbook because I haven't looked at the recipes in it in a really, really long time. It was a turning point for me. I've always enjoyed cooking. Uh, my mom, well, I grew up in a household, there were five kids and my mom was an outstanding cook, but man, she cooked all the time. And I, yeah. I, I was interested in it. I said, Hey, how do you make this? She's like, too busy. <laughs> Get the hell out of the kitchen. <laughs> but she, you know, finally she kind of saw I was serious and I would hang out and do things. But 
we had, like I said, we, I learned to make Japanese things. My mom kind of had a small catering bi- business doing like this, uh, you know, fried chicken's always popular. Popular with this chicken called mafa chicken mm. that uh, it uses a uh, fermented bean paste to oh, give sure. it this kind of tang. Anyway, she'd make that. She'd make shrimp tempura, different things. But you know, so you, you know, went, went to college and I graduated, and, and I was when I finally start to kind of cook things at home. You know, getting past lasagna or whatever you'd make for your friends. I, I think my sister gave me the book, and it was like it opened up a whole new world to me. Just like oh, and you know, this is the thing that's funny. Today you travel, and you know. Someone says, oh, try this cannelé or try whatever. You know, it's like, oh, you get to try them. I'm reading this book. I have no flipping idea what these things things are. (laughs) So you make them, and there weren't pictures, and it's like, it tastes pretty good. I hope I did okay. Right. (laughs) And then, you know, years later, you you travel. It's like, oh, so that's what that is. Well, I mean, you know, you raise an interesting point there, which is that, um, you know, in so much of these things... Right, like even if the dishes that are being served and called ramen in places are not exactly what we think of as ramen, if they're delicious, yeah, then that's fine, right? And, and maybe <laughs> they, maybe they learned it from reading something and there was no picture, <laughs> yeah, right? You know, that, I, I need to lighten up a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I've certainly looked. I've spent a lot of time looking at old cookbooks, and you look at cookbooks from the 19th century, and there are no pictures. Yeah, so you're just sort of like making an assumption of what it's supposed to look like, you know, and, and even what it's supposed to taste like, and even what you're supposed to do. I mean, some of those recipes are incredibly vague yeah uh, <laughs> so um, well uh, you know it's been a real pleasure to, Thanks, to have you on the show um, people can find uh, you know find out more at snakeriverfarms.com um, and you can check out Snake River Farms on social media at Snake River Farms and Dave you're on social media at High Zoot yeah on my Instagram feed so come on over and we'll talk ramen awesome well thanks very much alright thank you I'll leave you today with a quote from MFK Fisher. The truth is that most bereaved souls crave nourishment more tangible than prayers. They want a steak. What is more, they need a steak. Preferably, they need it rare, grilled, heavily salted, for that way it is most easily digested and most quickly turned into the glandular whip their tired adrenals cry out for. Thanks for listening today. Check out snakeriverfarms.com and use code FYE2018 for a 10% discount and free shipping. Don't forget to head over to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and support this and all the other great shows here on HRN. Big thank you to David Tatashore for engineering this show today and all the time. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. And please take a moment to like the show if you did in fact like it on any of those places. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on social media at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.